all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning and thanks for being with us on Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owen, specialist in maternal fetal medicine at U and an OBGYN. I don't mean to leave that out, an OBGYN at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Uh, today we are talking about, it's a very serious topic today, we're talking about addiction, whether it's alcohol addiction or drug addiction or gambling addiction and, and others. Our special guest is Denise Marsters. She is the executive director and founder of the McCoy House for Sober Living. We take your questions and comments, and because this is about addiction and is a very private, personal subject, if you want to make up a first fake name, if you want to make up uh, where you're from, you're welcome to do that. We just need a name to call you by. It doesn't have to be your real name. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. And first, good morning, Dr. Owens. Good morning. It's nice to see you as always every Friday. Yes, and, and this is a this is a great Friday indeed. It is indeed. And, Good and weather, yay! Yay! Before I'm we, really excited. Before we get the yeah complete uh, storm before and, the washout comes. Yeah, the washout and the wind and the hail and whatever else might come along. That's tomorrow, maybe tonight. Anyway, we are happy to welcome Denise Marsters. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We always start by asking our guests to tell us something about themselves, and people will hear you talking and they'll they'll know that they'll say you're she's not, from Mississippi. You're not from yes. Mississippi. So <laughs> tell us where you're from and and how you ended up here and in this Great. particular field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, my name is Denise Marsters, and I am of Irish descent. I was born and raised in Ireland. Ireland. Which part? Ireland. Which part of uh, Ireland? Southern Ireland, County Clare. Uh, lived there for 25 years. And at 25 years of age, I moved to Saudi Arabia wow. to work at um, the King Abdulaziz Air Base Hospital in Dahran. Uh, we were um, employed by, the, by an American company called uh, National Medical Enterprises to open a hospital. And we were there for four years showing people how to take over our jobs. And then we left after four years. That's where I met my American husband. He was from California. And we moved back to Dallas where he worked in a hospital in Dallas. He was a financial controller. Then we moved to Shreveport and then finally to Jackson that I call my home. Now, when you were in Saudi Arabia, you were work, You were doing uh, addiction? No, 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 no. no. Um, I was actually struggling with addiction at that time myself. Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for 24 years, and I got sober here in Jackson. So I'm, I'm always grateful to Mississippi and the people of Mississippi who stood by me 
um, who were there to support me when I was struggling. It put you in a unique position to be able to counsel people. Yes. Oh my sure gosh, because you know, I mean, you, you've lived it, you know all of the stages and what people go through and the challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, and for people who don't know what you do right now, can you tell them a little bit? Because I, I, your story is just so amazing and so powerful. And um, for people who don't know, I just want them to have an idea about what you're doing here now and, mm-hmm. um, and kind of how your story has kind of contributed to kind of getting you where you are mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Well, sometimes this gets emotional when I talk about it, when I, when I hear that people That's have okay, passion. That's okay, we don't have any tissues <laughs> on here. That, um, yeah, when people ask me to tell my story, my story is, unfortunately and fortunately, I am a recovering alcoholic, which has been the best blessing of my life, really. Um, when I left to go to Saudi Arabia, I was struggling with alcohol abuse. I didn't call it addiction at the time or alcoholism. And I, did, I went to Saudi because I thought there wasn't any alcohol in Saudi. It's supposed to be a dry country. And I saw more alcohol and drugs than I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah, the only thing dry is the weather. <laughs> That's it. That's it. The humidity is wet, though. Um, but here in Jackson, I'm the founder of a sober house for women, women who get out of treatment after, after finishing treatment inpatient treatment for addiction. They have to successfully complete that. We ask them to make a 90-day commitment because it takes about 90 days for the brain to get back into homeostasis. And we help them on their path. What does that mean, homeostasis? Um, Normal. Back to your normal state. Yeah, yeah, just back to the normal state where they can feel and they can um, be able to make right decisions or healthy decisions. Most of our decisions when we're addicted are unhealthy decisions. We do stuff. It's not all about the alcohol or the drugs. It's about the behaviors that we do when we are on alcohol and drugs. For that 90 days, do they live at McCoy House? Yes, they live at the McCoy House. We are, we're a nonprofit 501c3. I founded it back in 2008, and we've been 10 years in existence. We've had over 400 women go through our place. They have to be involved in an intensive outpatient program while they're with us. We do offer a lot at the McCoy House. I, I told Michelle that we just, I just got through with a yoga class before I got here. So I was so racing. She came in all her yoga gear. And racing over like, oh here. Um, but we do. We, we, um, we try to incorporate a lot of different approaches, holistic approaches, into our program where they do yoga, they do meditation, exercise. We take them to equine therapy once a month. We have an artist that comes in once a week for two hours, and she teaches them uh, art therapy. We have a labyrinth that we built ourselves on the property. So we're on seven and a half acres, and we've got two ponds. We also have two houses. Where Sounds they, beautiful yeah, and peaceful. It is great, and it's, it's in the Jackson area. Mm-hmm. We keep the location of it private mm-hmm. for the safety and the confidentiality of our women but it's amazing it is it really it's a is. beautiful a beautiful place and i so you've said a couple of things that i'm sure we will touch on um a little bit more as we get deeper into the show um but i um i like the concept that you still consider yourself in recovery and the mm-hmm. whole concept about being sober and dealing with addiction is that it is a lifelong journey, um, and it is truly a journey. 
Um, and some people think of sober as a destination, but in actuality, it's really just a journey and it's, it's not where you arrive, but it's really the beginning of a, a whole different kind of life. Um, that, um, sometimes it's very difficult to see when you are struggling with addiction, how that kind of life could actually be beneficial or better um, than where you are. But there are so many great benefits to making that difficult decision, that walk to begin the journey of sobriety. And the other thing that you mentioned, and we'll talk about this too, and you know, I hate the, the stigma. We have, there's so many different health issues that carry a stigma mm. and Addiction is definitely on that list. It's not the only one, but it's definitely one. And um, that's one of the things that we really work toward on this show is trying to help get people information, bring things out in the open to 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 validate these issues as true health issues. Because what you said was 90 days to get your brain back to homeostasis and recognizing that addiction is a brain disease. And just like we wouldn't tell a diabetic not to take their insulin or how we wouldn't tell a hypertensive not to take their medicine, that people who are, who are dealing with addiction are struggling with a chemical imbalance that affects their brain and the way that they function and the way that they think and how we have to actually treat that. Sure. And so the answer is not always with another chemical, um, but sometimes it's just time that it actually takes for your brain to get back to a situation that is normal, whether where it's not under the influences of different su- of those substances. And so, I think that those are two really great points to start out this show. And I'm so glad you're here because you know it's kind of one of the hot topics. People are talking about the opiate crisis, and I think one of the things that we failed to do is we don't, when, when we're focusing on one particular issue, we don't really see addiction as a whole. Right. We want to parcel it out. Mm-hmm. So it's the alcohol, the people who struggle with alcohol, different from the people who struggle with addiction, whether it's opiates or if it's sex and other behaviors, that somehow they're different, but they're, it, there's, there are common threads that kind right. of bind them all. And the decisions that people make to come out of those are very difficult and how it affects them socially and their environments that have to change. It can be very alienating. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the process of taking that walk, the path to forgiveness, number one, for yourself, um, and then for the people around you is, is Herculean. And I think that many people who are in recovery don't get the pats on the back that they very much deserve. Um, because of all of the other negative stuff that gets pushed on and people say, oh, well, you're just finally doing the right thing and they don't need to be applauded, but they do because they make incredibly brave decisions and conscious choices every single day to do something different that's hard. And I just feel like we need to like grab the pom-poms and wave them for those people because they don't get that enough. We're going to go to the phones, and Phil is calling in from Gulfport. Hi, Phil. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, good Phil. Morning. I'm Phil, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Phil. Hi, Phil. Um, I've had a recent experience. I, I first stopped drinking about 30 years ago. I was sober for 15, and about 15 years ago, 
started drinking again, <clears throat> socially, uh, moderately. Um, I didn't didn't drink and drive, didn't uh, you know put myself in harm's way or other people. But uh, it progressed, and I started drinking at home, and it started having uh, some uh, relationship problems. And I turned to a closet dra- being a closet drinker, and I, I thought I had it checked. I um, would uh, monitor myself, and uh, I was drinking late at night by myself in bed, basically, um, drinking myself to sleep. And I would I would check myself periodically and and um, stop drinking for you know periods a week or so uh, with no ill effects. And then it got to the point where I decided that I need to quit totally and experience the most, um, uh, what would I say, full onset of DTs mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. detox. Withdrawals. And, and found out myself in the hospital, intubated, and in ICU. Um, it hasn't been hard to quit, but uh, if anybody has is still drinking and wants to quit, um, there's so many different ways you can do it. Uh, you can get help from numerous organizations, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, smart programs, um, but you just have to do it. You have to get the strength and, and the desire to do it and the help. Well, Phil, we thank you so much for calling and sharing your story with us. Yes, and thank you. And your encouragement and your hope for others. I mean, that's really touching and, and we really appreciate it. And good luck to you. I, You know, like I said, it's it's a journey. And, you know, any of us at any given point in time, who who hasn't been driving and you take the wrong turn? You're going mm-hmm. somewhere. I mean, we, we know where we think we want to go in life, but we know that we don't really know where we're going to end up. And so who hasn't been driving and taking a wrong turn? And sometimes you oh, I think I'm I think I'm going this way and then you realize that you don't really know or you're you're not right. You can stop and ask for directions or you just turn yourself around and go back the way you came until you get back to the road that you were originally on. And I think that none of us wants to be judged forever by the decisions that we make in our weakest moments or by the missteps that we've made. And especially when we're talking about dealing with issues related to addiction, sometimes those people unfairly have to carry that burden forever. And the issue to me is that I I just want people to hear that that it doesn't have to be a burden for you. That can be a motivation for you because it can be the thing that you've overcome. And that's why I feel I'm so glad that you called us and and gave us like a living, breathing example of, you know, how this is a journey and how you might sometimes get off track and you but to to continually find a way back. And sometimes it takes being in an intensive care unit. Sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom. But there are some folks who might hear you today. And because of what you've said, they won't get that far and they will take the steps that they're needed to bring them back before they have to get there. Thank you so much, Phil. We appreciate that. Thank you, Phil. We need to take our first break of the show. If you'd like to give us a call, 
The number is 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. If you'd prefer, send an email to women at mpbonline.org. And again, you don't have to use your real name if you don't want to. You can make up a location you're calling from. That's totally up to you. We'll be right back on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Thank you for listening to Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens. Our special guest today is Denise Marsters. She's the executive director and founder of the McCoy House for Sober Living. We're talking about addiction today. And we have two callers waiting to talk with us. So let's go straight to the phone and say hi to Laura, who is on the road. Hi, Laura. Hi, how are you? We're great. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for this conversation today because it really, it's so helpful and so important to talk about things that people typically don't speak about. Um, But I'm calling because the love of my life for 25 years is an alcoholic and for the longest time has continued to not recognize his disease. And so as much as I want to be supportive, we've gone through counseling, we ultimately ended up being divorced and he's estranged from our children because of of his continued denial and continued addiction and, and won't go through. He's been in rehab a few times but then will not do the work after rehab to to stay in a program and just thinks that you know, that, that he's got it beat on his own and, and he doesn't and it's tragic. So so how do you handle how do you support that person who won't confront the truth of of their illness? Denise? Well that that is a hard question to answer because I know for myself, I did not come to my own assistance until I realized that I had come to a dead end. And I was in treatment four times before I got sober. So, um, Laura, I wouldn't give up hope on the love of your life. It appears to be it was your husband. But he's going to have to find his own way. Um, And a lot of times we deal with families who enable people to continue Um, Sometimes you just have to get to a full stop yourself and realize that there is something wrong and that you have to get help. And you said he never followed through after treatment. That's the main thing. That is the biggest relapse um, potential out there when people, they go back to the same environment that they left. And most of the 
I'm involved in a sober house for women, so I don't I deal with a lot of men in my profession because I am also a counselor and a therapist. And I don't think there's one time that I have felt that there hasn't been trauma in somebody's past. And it doesn't have to be a traumatic event where somebody is held hostage or raped or sexually abused, but there can be little T traumas is what we call them. Um, some stuff about self-esteem, self-worth. And, and then there's the big spiritual part. I know when I got sober, my, I had no spiritual connection. And for me, sobriety is about a connection with the higher power, whatever that may be for people. Uh, and that's, that's the missing link for most people. So here's a question. Laura, you, you ask how to be supportive. And I was just wondering, what things have you tried? Or is there, are there things that you had tried before? Um, and I'm not sure if she's still. Uh, yeah, you're still there. Good. Oh, no. <laughs> have, uh, so are there things that you had tried um, throughout the course of your experience with your ex-husband to like, was it a tough love stance that you took? Was it a more like trying to um, very gingerly or gently uh, call attention to these behaviors? What what things did you try? Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> um I, it started out with, honestly, my daughter telling me, because she observed things that my husband was doing before I did. You know, I was working out of the home, and, and honestly, I just maybe didn't want to confront things that I possibly knew, but when I realized that it was becoming a problem with the children, uh, recognizing some of the behaviors of just, you know, constant drinking, constant, and he was a very functional alcoholic, so that um, he could appear sober even though he was drinking, um, you know, a case a day or then, or possibly a handle of vodka a day. And so at first I would confront him with, with photographs of things that we would find, the empties, uh, and I would... I went to counseling with him, and the counselor fired us because he said he's in such denial that I can't help you until he gets ready. Um, we, yeah, I had great guilt because when I finally did tough love and, and had to tell him to leave the home, um, I felt horrible guilt because I felt that I was turning, you know, away on our, on my marriage vows. There's a sickness and health kind of component that I, I was not being able to be, you know, really espoused to him as, as he was just not able to, to confront his illness. And so finally, when he was hospitalized a couple of times because he collapsed at work, uh, I, I got him enrolled into a, a rehab program, and I think altogether he's been in three different ones. Uh, and each time he went in almost with a defiant, I'm going to show them that I'm not an alcoholic kind of attitude as opposed to I need to get help. So he's just never been able to reach that point, and it was finally when he was arrested um, that, that I said this this is enough, I can't do it anymore, and, and proceeded with divorce. And the divorce took a, a while, and, and still it just 
it, it just didn't get through to him. So he's lost his job. He's lost his family. He's lost, you know, um, so much. And still, you know, I, I feel like I gave him lots of chances, but it just never got through. So Denise, I just, do you have people know. that come? I'm sorry. Do you have people that come? who are still in denial, who yes. still think they don't have a problem? Denial is part of the addiction. Uh, denial is what keeps the addiction alive. And one of the things that I would say to you, Laura, is don't give up hope, but sometimes a person has to lose everything in order to get better, and I did. I lost everything. My husband left. I lived in an apartment with a, um, a mattress on the floor, a TV on the floor, with a gun to my head. And, you know, this is, it's a sad disease. It's a very complex um, brain disease that the, the main purpose of a disease is to kill its host. Hmm. Well, Laura, we thank you and wish you the very best. Um, yes. You've, you've talked to a lot of women today. Thank you, And Laura. men who are dealing with that with their spouses. So thank yeah. you so well, much. Thank you so much for continuing the conversation because, again, yeah, I think somebody has said before, we're as sick as our secrets. That's and right. to be able to share information and maybe help one another, you know, you, you made the excellent point about this being a journey, and it absolutely is. So, so thank you for your Thank you. Thank you, Laura. We're going to okay. continue on the phone, and we have Sue calling in from Beaumont. Hi, Sue. Go ahead. Hi, Sue. Good morning. Good. I'd like to ask a couple of questions. Are, are addictions ingrained genetic tendencies or are they or is alcohol, alcoholism, and other addictions learned behavior? And what kind of medications can be helpful to control or change brain chemistry? And people who learn to control one addictive substance, do they often substitute some other destructive replacement uh, habit with, with with their old addiction? Okay. These are some great questions. They sure are. <laughs> Sue, you're giving us all, all kinds of great uh, topics to talk about. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I forget what you first asked. Is it genetic? Um, is it genetic? It can be. Um, yes, it can, but it's also environmental. A lot of times it's caused by trauma. A person is trying to escape from their trauma. They're trying to numb out the pain of the past. It doesn't always have to be genetic. Uh, if people substitute, yes, they do. It's like that game whack-a-mole. I, I tell the people when they come to me, they give up the drugs, they give up the alcohol, and the brain has no morality. It doesn't know that it's trying to heal, but it is so used to escaping that it will use any measure, and it will go to gambling, shopping, eating, over-exercising, sex, relationships, anything, even Facebook, um, playing games on your phone. So it will go to anything until the person is willing to let go of everything so that they can gain their lives back. And that's a huge thing for people to, it's a huge courageous step, but it's also a very, a lot of them are, are filled with fear. What am I going to find out if I have trauma? What is going to bring up for me? Am I going to be able to handle it? Do I have the people that can help me to handle it? So it's, um, it is a journey and it's a bumpy journey. <laughs> And early sobriety is tough. She also asked about, is there something to change brain chemistry? I'm sure there are medications. I'm not, I'm not a big um, advocate of using one medication for another. Um, I believe that people do have to be on types of medication to go through 
withdrawals. They definitely have to. We just sent somebody yesterday yeah. to inpatient treatment because they could not do this on an outpatient basis because mm-hmm. you can die from uh, um, uh, the DTs or Absolutely. from withdrawals. So we sent her for detox. I'm hoping that she will come back to us. But um, in certain instances, I was diagnosed with bipolar and I was on medications for several, several years. And I don't think I was really bipolar. I think it was related to my alcoholism. And today I don't take anything, but I do not advise people to go off their medications if they're on medications. Yeah, and I do believe that um, people need to understand. So there are things that can place you at risk. We talked about uh, trauma, and there are things that, that are actually traumatic. And depending on what your situation is, there are things that we might not that might not register to us as trauma, right. but that are still traumatic mm-hmm. and have an a lasting impression on us. Um, but the other piece is that when you do have family members who have struggled with addiction, that does increase your risk as a person who is at risk for developing an addiction. And you know, it's kind of the whole nature versus nurture. There are definitely some genetic predispositions that exist. But the other piece is environmentally what what people see. So you can that can it can be learned behavior. But there is also it's also been very well proven that um, addiction kind of tends to or it can run in families. And so people who may have had a father who's an alcoholic and then they end up being alcoholics or have a parent who struggled with addiction and then they too um, struggle with addiction. So. they're definitely, I think the answer is to your question, either or the answer is yes, um, because it can be both. Sue, thank you so much for your phone call. We need to take another break. Liam, hang on the line. We're going to get to your phone call as soon as we come back. If you'd like to call in, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. And we'll be right back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. I'm Karen Brown. Dr. Michelle Owens is here. Our special guest is Denise Morsters. I'm saying this quickly because our topic today is addiction, alcoholism specifically. And we have the phone lines just lighting up. So we're going to go straight to the phones. Liam calling from Gulfport. Liam, thank you so much for your patience. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, I appreciate the panel's conversation about uh, the role of trauma exposure 
uh, and exposure to um, inadequate social support and the role of problematic use of substances. And I was wondering if the panel could uh, sort of shed light on what that means specifically for Mississippi, where we face such limited resources for victims of interpersonal violence, such limited resources for uh, working mothers and families, and such limited resources uh, for preventative wellness uh, for women, and what that means for their susceptibility for problematic use of substances, as well as their ability to recover when they find themselves there. Is there a correlation between those kinds of issues and alcoholism? Like, why does someone drink? It comes down to the basics. Why does someone drink? They drink to escape. They drink to feel better. They drink to numb out. They drink because of trauma. If they're lack of support, I mm-hmm. mean, and and Liam just like hit it on the head. It it makes it harder. All of those things are barriers. They're they're additional things that add stress to people's lives and make it more difficult for people who struggle with addiction to get the help that they need, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm so glad that Denise is with us today. And so that people hear that there are resources that are out there and that there are pathways for them to get help. And the truth is that it's probably not as easy as it should be. Um, And for, for, for every 10 people that are struggling there may only be two or three people that really get help, but it it shouldn't be because of the lack of existence of those places or a lack of knowledge about the ones that do exist. Right. And it's just really difficult to to garner support. And you you probably know this firsthand, not only from a person who has struggled individually, but also now that you are trying to be a pathway to help other people. Mm-hmm how difficult it is it's you don't run your your business it it costs to be able to provide these services and there aren't people who are lining up at the door you know throwing money mm-hmm. at your organization mm-hmm. um and it's hard when you have to overcome social stigma and all those for treatment for these particular issues because we tend to take a very hard line stance they're adults they made that decision that's your bed you sleep in it not really treating this as an illness right. as though it is something that, like people woke up and said, hey, guess what I'm going to do today? I want to go and, and be an addict. Said right. nobody ever. Like, that's not how this happens. You know, and yet we will. But but yet we want to. And, and when I say we, I mean, society in general casts these aspersions on individuals who are suffering rather than like what is it in us that will not allow us to show each other the decency and humanity to offer a hand out to a person regardless of of why they're in that situation but why do we then place value on how they got there rather than just seeing a person who's suffering and who needs help and to be willing and and enthusiastically wanting to help them. You know, I just want to say that Liam has hung up, but Liam was calling from Gulfport, and we've talked to experts who said after Hurricane Katrina, that was considered trauma, and that uh, a number of people responded by going into depression or having anxiety, which led to perhaps domestic violence or starting to drink mm-hmm. or use drugs in order to cope from that trauma. Right. And the body the body is designed to heal from stress. But if you saw what happened in Katrina, these people when if if we have a problem here in town or we have a storm or we have all of the neighbors come out to help. 
Well, with Katrina, those people were not allowed to help. They were bussed off to new, to mm-hmm. other places, and their trauma was trapped in their bodies. And that's why most of those people, there was looting, there was fighting, there was... Studies have shown that when we have stress, stress is a good thing. It makes us do something. But when you can't do it, it's held in the body, mm-hmm. and that's trauma. And the other piece, I think, is that for for those individuals who are displaced... Um, many of those people were taken away from the only place that they'd ever known. So even though there was destruction and chaos and you can't stay to just, there's, there's a trauma in that sudden or abrupt change. And it was involuntary. Mm -hmm. That wasn't something where everybody's like, Hey, let's go Mm -hmm. and pick up and move. There were, there were people who ended up being taken to Minnesota and all these other random places that were, Opening their 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 doors, the the floodgates to their city, opening them up to allow people to come in, which is is great. But at the same time, you know, the other piece is not recognizing the huge impact that it had on people and and that, yeah, it's great to have some place to go. But this place is totally different from anything that ever have known. And now I have to start over. And while being here is great. What else, like as I deal with losing everything that I have, my possessions and my job and all that. But then my network, my community is now gone and fragmented. And the people who I've looked to and depended upon for all this time are now all we're all scattered. And so, I mean, that in and of itself is like a continuation of trauma, additional unintended consequences of something that was necessary, Mm -hmm. but that still has some negative effects. Yeah. Mike is on the phone calling from Oxford. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Mike. I just had a friend, uh, my wife and I have a friend who just passed away just this past week from alcoholism, and and, uh, we didn't know that, that he was alcoholic, but um, we hadn't been in touch on a person-to-person level for about 12 years, and so we didn't see any of that when we knew him because we worked with him professionally, uh, and he seemed like the last person that would ever go uh, down that road. And maybe when we did know him, maybe he was alcoholic at the time. But um, so, unfortunately, it's it's just a sad ending. Uh, from all the, it, it is very connected to all the other stories that have uh, been talked about this hour. But I also wanted to talk about um, the lasting consequence of alcoholism in families for generations uh, after. Like, I think in my own personal family, my uh, both of my all of my grandparents were probably alcoholic, mm-hmm. and some of them severe. And uh, my mother uh, took that and uh, was an alcoholic and addicted to drugs, not heart street drugs, but um, uh, but uh, stuff like codeine. And eventually she went into massive amounts of therapy. But unfortunately, with all of that professional help, and it was decades of it, and she became a therapist too, I feel like um, some part of it, didn't get solved like some essential piece of it and our family is quite fractured um so it it, it, as a result we're not close and i have a bunch of siblings so it it has it plays out 
uh, for generations, and it was helpful for me to realize that that the playing out of it uh, was a big part, maybe, of the dysfunction in our family. Denise, can you respond to him? Yeah. Gosh, I can hear your pain. Um, I did not grow up in an alcoholic family, but I know that there is generational trauma, Mm -hmm. and it's handed down from generation to generation. And the one thing that you didn't get, um, Mike, was the nurturing, the bonding, and the care that you should have got as a child. And those are deep, deep, deep wounds. Those, Those wounds cause us to have issues in relationships in adult life because we don't know how to bond. We don't, we're, we're not, we don't know what intimacy is other than having sex. There's such a thing as emotional intimacy and connection. And when we don't get that, we turn to other behaviors that will allow us to fill up that emptiness. Mike, I'm so sorry for your loss, but I think what you brought up is something that is really important, and I want people to hear it. You can't always see it. Right. Um, and for people who have been struggling with addiction for a long time, I think everybody wants to believe that an addict is somebody who is disheveled and, and dirty on the street who's begging for, you know, a couple of dollars so that they can go get high or what have you. And in actuality, they are our next door neighbors. They're our church members. They are the people across the street. They are the mail carrier that you wave to every day. They are the the dog walkers or the teachers or I mean they are they are everyday people that we share our lives with and so many of them are suffering in silence. They are as we've heard earlier, drinking themselves to sleep at night. Um, they are constantly living in a state of angst where they are trying to cope with and deal with some level of pain or trauma that is really just kind of running their lives because the whole thing is about the brain's desire to to cope with or to to kind of assuage those feelings and that is one of the things that's been most impressive to me in my experience in working with people who are struggling with addiction is how adept they can be at they become professionals at hiding their pain and you know every now and again something may be a little off or come loose in one place or another, but they can function for very long periods of time um, hiding, basically, their their pain and their turmoil. And um, I think that for those of us who think that there may be something wrong, that, you know, finding a way to, to speak our truth or our concerns and love to people and to create safe spaces whereby people can share um, or say, I'm concerned about you. I'm worried about you. I've noticed this is different. Um, and just to kind of make people feel like it's okay as opposed to that they're going to be ostracized if they show this this thread of weakness is kind of one of the best things that we as people in the community and as supporters and, and as lovers and friends of um, the people around us um, as fellow human beings, one of the best things that we can do. 
Mike, thank you so much for your phone call. We're not going to take our last break because I want to have time to you know talk to the callers. It takes a little bit more time today. Yeah. So if you'd like to give us a call, now's the time. We just have a few more minutes to take phone calls. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 7464 or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. And now we say hi to Richard calling from Saltillo. Richard, Hi, Richard. go ahead. Yeah. Hey. Hi. How are you? We're doing all doing well. fine. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks. <laughs> uh, waiting for tomorrow's storms. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, really. Um, I, I, I'm calling because I, I, I want to disagree with you on something. Um, it's something you said, you know, I, I, I was on my way back from an assignment and, and I generally listen to MPB, uh, and I don't know how you worded it, but you, you said something along the lines of a, a necessary element of uh, healing or treatment or however we want to put it is, you know, I think you use the term spirituality, you know, and I, I disagree with that because I actually was in a situation where I was drinking too much. And I'm not a spiritual person and not a religious person. And it just got to the point where I said, you know, I need to stop this. And so I quit. But there was no, you know, going to, you know, some kind of spiritual side of it or anything it was just a practical uh practical move on my part you know where i realized that i you know this was not doing me any good and it was costing me money and blah 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 and i said you know well i quit and you know that that that's my disagreement is that it's not necessarily needed by everyone you know, I, I realize there are people that need that, but not everyone needs that. Denise? Right. And I appreciate your honesty. Um, for me, and I think I, I, I was speaking for myself, um, it is an opinion that it, it was the darkness that I had. It was the, the uh, emptiness that I had that I filled with um, spirituality and I think for everybody it, it's it's different whatever works for somebody is what works yeah I th- and you know I think sometimes um you know it it's not to say that everybody has to feel spiritual but I do believe that we as as human beings um have a desire to feel some level of connectivity right. and that's however you define that um I think that that one of the things that people who um, struggle with addiction typically deal with at some point is that there is a disconnection. They, because of their addiction, which supersedes all of those other things, because we are, we're social beings there. It, it gets to a point escalates to a point where you don't have that level of connectivity, but, whether it's with others or what have you. And so I, I think just to, just to be clear, and I appreciate Denise for clarifying that she was speaking about her herself personally. Um, while spirituality is a, a a very big piece for many people who are recovering, um, 
by no means are we trying to say that that it's the silver bullet or that Mm -hmm. everybody has to do that because there are plenty of people who don't really feel a necessary spiritual connection or have that conviction, but still are struggling with addiction. And so by no means are we saying that if you don't have that, that you're not going to be successful or that you can't do that. But I do believe that there's a level of connectivity and that disconnect is one of the things that's one of the great um Uh, uniformly separating things that happens when people struggle with addiction. But I I do appreciate you calling Richard and sharing your perspective. You sound like a really pragmatic guy. You're like, yeah, I just kind (laughs) of figured out this thing wasn't working. And so I had to do better. And I think, I think that's, I mean, that's (laughs) awesome. There are some people who can stop smoking cold Turkey um, and never touch a cigarette again. And then there are other folks for whom it's um, a much more complicated process. It definitely takes all kinds and by no means are we trying to exclude or make anybody feel excluded in that process. If that is not something that works for you, then definitely do the thing that works for you. And right. congratulations to you on being able to to overcome um, your issues. Thank you, Richard. Thank Absolutely. You. Um, I wanted to ask you, this is the end of the show almost, and I just wanted to say it before, when does someone become... You know, nobody drinks. I think you said this, Dr. Owens. Nobody starts drinking to become an addict. So someone drinks because it's a social kind of thing. You do it with friends. You know, taking drugs is one thing because that's against the law. Drinking isn't against the Mm -hmm. law. So when does social drinking become a problem? When should you start recognizing something in yourself that should make you say, I better quit? Well, one of the questions is, if you ask yourself if you have a problem, you probably have a problem. Um, I know for me, it was interfering with my social life. It was interfering with my family life. It was interfering with my spiritual life. And I was having consequences. So somebody can go to a restaurant and have a glass of wine with, with dinner. Well, Denise went to a restaurant, and one glass of wine was just the, the, the oil that started the wheel rolling. But when you started drinking, were you drinking that much, no. or did you hit the... Okay. No. Um, I ended up um, consuming a lot of alcohol that, if I had taken that initially, I would have died from, from alcohol poisoning. But it takes more to get the same effect. You get used to it. You use it as a coping skill, or at least I got used to it. I used it as a coping skill, and then I could not stop. I felt that I needed alcohol to live. Today, I know that if I drink alcohol again, I will die an alcoholic, but I don't have to die from alcoholism. I am still an alcoholic. I cannot put alcohol in my body today, and I'm okay with that. Is it day by day still, 25 years later? Not really, no. I rarely think of it, rarely think of drinking, because I have... have, um, I've put something else in its place. I've replaced it with helping others. I think our highest calling as human beings is to be of service. And that's what we do at the McCoy House. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Such a a great way to end the show on a high note. I mean, the fact that there is that there is a a positive message, some encouragement there. And again, Denise is the executive director and founder of the McCoy House for Sober Living. I wanted to get the name in again. But Denise, thank you so much. Callers, thank you so much for very thoughtful uh, calls today. We really do appreciate it. Southern Remedy for Women is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio. It's funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by generous support from the MPB Foundation. Today's show is engineered by Jay White. White, our call screener, Michelle McAdoo. And next is Here and Now 
on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.